All right. Well, as you guys know, we are working through the book of John. We're on John chapter 15. We're going to go through the whole chapter today. There's some really good stuff in here. Uh, you can open your Bibles to 15. You can go through your notes. You can follow along with the verses as they pop up on the screen. You can just stare at me. Anything works. Uh, we just want to encourage you to get what Jesus is saying, uh, which uh, kind of got preached a little bit already in worship. So let's jump in. Amen? All right. I want to begin by reviewing uh, because we're going to build on what we learned in John 14. Now, let me remind you that these four chapters that we're going through right now, John 14 through 17, are... Uh, I think probably the most important section in the Bible because it's Jesus' last words and prayer uh, to and with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And what we see, the overarching theme in all of this, is it's about entering into the love environment in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they have, uh, since before the earth was created, long before, been dwelling together in perfect unity in this incredible environment of love. And we've simply been invited into it. And so John 14 through 17 is trying to show us how we can enter in and begin to participate in the family of God in this intense love environment. And he gave us two ways in John 14. In John 14, 2, uh, remember, Jesus says, uh, I go... Uh, in my father's household or family are many dwelling places. I go to the cross to make a dwelling place for you and the father. So one, he has made a dwelling place for us in the father. We call that uh, Psalm 31, the secret place of his presence. Psalm 91, um, he dwells in the secret place of the most high. There's this dwelling place in him. The second thing we see, John 14, 23, is him putting the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, and he introduces it saying uh, that Jesus and the Father are going to put the Holy Spirit in us to make a dwelling place in us for them. We're going to make our home with you. The Holy Spirit has been with you and will be in you. And so it's very simple, and he uses the exact same Greek word in both those passages to say, uh, I've made a dwelling place for you in the Father, and we have made a dwelling place in you for us. It's important that you remember that because we're going to go into that more. And sandwiched between those two verses, he talked about doing the greater works, greater works than Jesus did, the greater works of the Father. And we talked about how those works follow abiding in this dwelling place. They don't follow having right doctrine or right theology, although we need to have right doctrine and right theology. They follow actually abiding with him in that dwelling place. Everybody got that? So that's the review. Let's jump in. And I love, this is one of my favorite passages coming up. It's a simple uh, picture, word picture, of a vine, something they would all understand. They have vines all over the place. Uh, maybe some of you guys have vines, uh, you know, for communion. Um, you never know. Anyway, uh, Verses 1 through 6, let's start there. I'm going to read them, then we'll go back through and break it down a little bit. He says, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, 
And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. Okay, let's make sure we understand this because there's some amazing stuff in here. First of all, uh, the simple part. Jesus is the vine. The life is in Jesus. He didn't put his life in us. He made us new creations in Christ. He didn't put his life in us and say, wander off. The life is in him. He put his life in us and said, stay connected to the life. So he is the vine. We are the branches. Very simple. Branches, uh, we've all done this as children. Branches taken off of any vine don't do well, do they? All right? So, or plant or anything else. And, of course, the Father is the vine dresser, the one who takes care of the vine because the purpose of the vine is fruit. And you need a vine dresser to make sure that the vine's bearing fruit. Amen? So everybody gets that. Now, in verse 2, we see two types of branches that are in him. And I want you to notice that he says, every branch, uh, he says in verse 2, every branch in me. This is going to be important as we begin to look at these. Because he says uh, there are two types of branches. There are types, there's a branch in him that is not bearing fruit, and there are branches in him that are bearing fruit. So we're going to play with the, the Greek a little bit in this. Um, so the, the word that is translated, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Here's the problem. And, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm just reading about guys who are and doing the best I can to do my homework. Um, but here's the thing. The word is uh, used fairly commonly in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated as taken away. Sometimes it's translated as lifted up. And there's no indication of which of those it is in this verse except context. And most of the time... Uh, that's the only way you can know how this word is being used. And so most of your translations probably say taken away because they're, uh, they're using verse 6 to get their context about the branches that are thrown into the fire. But I want to point out that the branches in verse 6, we'll get to that, aren't in him. This is a branch that's in him. And so I don't think what he's saying is taken away. I think it would be better translated. Just my opinion. You can disagree. Again, uh, Greek scholars do. The only way you can do this is by context. In context, to me, it seems he's saying there's two branches in me. Some of them aren't bearing fruit, and I lift those up. Now, uh, that just means to encourage in our context. Uh, and we all have seen, uh, how many of you have ever grown grapes in your backyard? Anyone? A couple of you? You put grape arbors out there so they could grow into them, so they could be lifted up. They don't do well just growing along the ground, do they? And so uh, we've all seen this. We've seen this in pictures, uh, you know, of all the lattice work that the grapes grow on. So that's what he's talking about here. He's just saying, uh, if you're in me and you're not bearing fruit, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to lift you up. Good? Now, 
Hopefully, he's doing that so you can get enough sunlight and life and start to bear fruit. He says that ones that are in me that are bearing fruit, I'm going to prune them so they bear more fruit. And again, uh, this is an interesting word in the Greek. It can mean pruned or cleansed. And uh, it means both in this. It literally means pruned here. But it also is a word used to mean cleansed. And I find it interesting. I think it's a word play as we go into verse 3. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then he goes into verse 3. But you are already clean, or if you will, pruned, because of the word which I have spoken to you. You see the play there. Jesus is clever like this. And so... In the original language, it's probably more interesting. So he's saying that uh, if you're not bearing fruit, I'm going to encourage you. If you are bearing fruit, that's awesome, but I want more fruit, so I'm going to prune you. And by prune, I mean cleanse. And by cleanse, I mean the word. All right? And he tells them, uh, you're already clean because the word I've spoken to you. And by the way, this is exactly the same root word uh, the word translated cleansed is the root word for pruned. And that's why I think they're connected. Um, so what do we get out of this? Uh, just the principle that the word cleanses us or the word prunes us. We saw this in John 13 when Jesus is washing Peter's, well, he wanted to wash Peter's feet. Peter was having none of that, remember? And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, uh, you got no part in me. And Peter said, well, then wash all of me because we're going to do anything except for what, exactly what you said. So <laughs> that's Peter. How many Peters? We, don't raise your hands. Right. Uh, and Jesus says, you're already clean. You just need your feet washed. He's clean because he believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him, that he's the Messiah. You just need our feet washed. Uh, that's the John 1, 9. We confess our sin. He's faithful and just. We walk around the earth. We get our dirt, feet dirty. We confess. He cleanses us. But we're clean already because of the word he's spoken to us, right? I find, so again, the word cleanses. Now, there's a really interesting uh, reference to this in Ephesians 5. Any of you who've been married or been to a wedding or read the Bible uh, have noticed this. In Ephesians 5, it's where uh, wives are told to submit to their husbands, right? All right. You, I, there's no, I heard zero, uh, you know, high-pitched amens. We'll see how we do on the other one. It's the same passage where husbands are told to love their wives like Jesus loves the church. Now I heard, and now I hear those feminine amens. I was hoping for some masculine ones. All right, we got work to do. Gary, make a note. Teach on, on marriage. All right. My point is this. Husbands are told to love their wives like Christ loves the church. And then Paul goes on and tells us how Christ loved the church. He says he, in verse 26, we have that up? He says that he loves the church and he washes her with the word. He purifies her with the word right? So we see this ongoing principle. How does Jesus love the church? Well, he's constantly pruning, cleansing, purifying, whatever you wish, with the Word. Amen? Incidentally, husbands, uh, 
this is how we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loves the church. We're supposed to wash her with the word. We're supposed to be applying uh, the word of God uh, to situations that are encouraging and helpful to her. Just that's free. That's extra. It wasn't even where I'm going today. <laughs> but uh, there you go. What I wanted to reinforce was this principle that Jesus is highlighting here, that the word cleanses us, that the ongoing work of his word in us is continually pruning and cleansing us. So pruning doesn't have to be painful unless we're resistant to the word of God working in us, right? It can be painful. Uh, You know, sometimes I get up here and teach and afterwards someone comes up to me and goes, ouch. I go, yeah, I know. But it's a good ouch, yeah? So the word cleanses us. All right, and then we get to probably my favorite two verses in this whole chapter, verses 4 and 5, where he says to abide in him and him in us, uh, that the, the vine, I'm sorry, the branches can't bear fruit without the vine. Uh, and, and, he, and he makes this really interesting dichotomy. He says, uh, in me, you'll bear much fruit, not just some, much, and without me, nothing. So it's not like there's an in-between. It's like you're either useless or very fruitful. That's his plan, all right? And so we want to get to the very fruitful and not vacillate between the two. Now, what I want you to see here, and I just think this is fun. If you don't get excited, it's okay. Uh, He says to abide in him, and we're going to focus on this because he's going to keep kind of beating this horse for the next few verses. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. But he also says him in us. He says, abide in me and I in you. It makes me think of the two verses I highlighted in John 14. I've made a place in the Father for you. I've made a place in you for me. Abide in me and I in you. And interestingly, it's exactly the same root word as those two verses. If you look up the Greek in those two verses in John, it'll tell you they come from the root that is used right here, abide in me. I've made a dwelling place in the Father for you. I've made a dwelling place by the Holy Spirit for the Father and the Son in you. And I want you to abide in both those places. That's all he's saying, right? And so we want to learn how to do that. Now, and again, I love that he says uh, nothing or much fruit. Nothing or much fruit. He's after much fruit. In fact, I'm going to skip to verse 8 here, and we'll hit it again when we read through that, but I just want to skip ahead. He is always at work, just like the Word is an ongoing work in us to prune us, to make us more fruitful. He is always at work in us to make us fruitful. Uh, he says this in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Disciple means follower. Disciples of Jesus means follower of Jesus. Jesus was obsessed with doing the will of the Father and bearing fruit. And he says, if you want to be like me, I need you to bear a lot of fruit because that glorifies the Father. And I'm obsessed with glorifying the Father. You get it? So he's going, look, I got to make you just as fruitful as I can make you because I want the Father to get glory. That's it, right? And so, are you in? You want to be fruitful? All right, good. Interestingly, it's kind of what we're commanded to do. I love in the Old Testament, 
Uh, how many of you are familiar with the command, be fruitful and multiply? It, it sounds redundant, but fruitful doesn't just mean babies. Multiply means babies. Uh, fruitful means just fruitful in life in general. Um, and so he told Adam, and then he told Noah, and then he told Israel, be fruitful and multiply. He kept repeating it each time. Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Noah, we're starting over. I need you to be fruitful and multiply. Israel, going to make you a great nation. I need you to be fruitful and multiply. And so for us, the command is a spiritual one. Be fruitful and multiply in the kingdom. Because now we're spiritual beings. And so being fruitful means bearing the fruit of the kingdom, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, doing the works of the Father. And multiplying simply means having lots of spiritual kids making disciples. That's it. That's what we're called to do. Why are you on the earth? Be fruitful because the Father will be glorified if you're very fruitful. And while you're here, make disciples. As you go, make disciples. That's, incidentally, that's what that verse means in, at the end of Matthew where he says, uh, uh, go, make disciples. He, he doesn't, that is not a call for all of us to leave the country. It literally is, as you go, wherever you go, Make disciples. If it's in another country, that's awesome. If it's in your backyard with a neighbor, that works too. Right? So that's it. We're called to be fruitful and multiply. To uh, bear fruit that glorifies the Father and to make disciples. Now, here's the important part. Here's the part we got to get. This seems so simple, and yet, and yet, uh, it just seems hard for us to do. It's, it's, it's hard for... I don't know. It's just hard for God to get, it's hard for him to get the Israelites to do this. It's hard for him to get the church to do this. Really want you to hear this. This is the deal. This is the most important thing we get out of this. He says, without me, you can do nothing. Biden me, much fruit. Without me, nothing. So who's doing the work? He's doing the work. We work with him by abiding in him, not for him with our ideas. We do not work for God. We do not come up with good ideas to work for God. God is not impressed with our good ideas for him. He wants us to work with him because only he can do the work. He does the work. We work with him by abiding in him. Now, that doesn't mean don't have good ideas. Have great ideas. Have awesome ideas. I would like more of you to have ideas of things to do for God. But when you come to me with your idea, and by the way, it's your idea. Don't have an idea for me to do something for God. You cannot delegate passion. I have my passion. You have your passion. You do your passion. We can't all do all the passions. Right? When you have an idea, you need to take that idea to the dwelling place and see if God's going to partner with you on that idea. Don't just go, I had a good idea, let's do it. Go, I had a good idea, and I'm going to go day after day, week after week, into the secret place, into the dwelling place, and talk with Jesus about my idea, and we're going we're to see if he's interested in my idea. If he's interested in your idea, then you got something going on. So all work must come from abiding in the dwelling place, from abiding in him. Man, if we could get that, guys. All work must come 
from the abiding place in Him. We so often try and get out doing the work. Let's go win the lost. Let's go do this thing. Let's go do that thing. I go, awesome, but let's do it in the power of God. Let's, having, let's do it having dwelt with Him so that He's doing the work. So that there's some work going on when we do it. Not in our own strength. Church has got to get this, guys. That's what the psalmist meant in Psalm 127, verse 1, when he said, unless the Lord builds the house, what? They labor in vain. You understand what that's saying? If the Lord isn't building, whatever you're building, it's vanity, it's useless. Unless the Lord's building it, you're wasting your time. All that work means nothing. You got to get the Lord building with you. We do that in the dwelling place. Amen? Sometimes in the dwelling place, he gives us work to do. Sometimes in the dwelling place, we go, hey, God, I'd like to do this. And he goes, go ahead, I'll back you. Either way, it's got to be done through partnership. It's got to be done out of dwelling with him, not just out of a good idea. Right? Okay, and then covering verse 6, we'll cover it quickly because it's unpleasant. Um, This is talking about the third type of branch, a branch that is not in him. And this branch, uh, the Greek there literally means cast outside and burned. I leave it to you to think of verses that fit that context. All right, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, stuff like that. So uh, we do not ever want to be a branch that is not in him. Amen? And here's what I want you to see. Uh, It really is in Christ more than anywhere else, not what you do, but who you know. It really is not what you do, but who you know. We do stuff with him, but it's not about doing the stuff. It's who you know. We see this in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus said, there's going to be people that show up and go, Jesus, we did all kinds of things in your name. And he's going to say to them, yeah, but I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who are a law unto yourself, you who are doing your ideas without partnering with me. Right? We don't want to be doing without him. It's not what we do. It's who we know. Trust me, you get to know him, you'll do. You'll bear much fruit. He'll give you stuff to do. That's not the problem. The hard part's the dwelling in the secret place. That's the hard part. I don't know why that's the hard part, but that's the hard part. Because it seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? All right, anyway, let's move on. So how do we do this? I'm telling you, Jesus is telling you we need to abide in him. How do we do that? Thankfully, verse 7 through 10 is going to give us three ways we can abide in him. Now, I want to tell you this, though. In context, verses 7 through 10, uh, Jesus has just told the disciples, I'm leaving. Remember? This whole, all four of these chapters started with, I'm leaving and I'm preparing to send you out as I've been sent out, right? So Jesus is going, I'm out of here, abide in me. You follow? Sounds confusing, doesn't it? I bet the disciples were wondering how that worked. I'm leaving, but abide in me. So obviously, it's not going to be a physical presence kind of thing, is it? 
And we know, of course, that he means the Holy Spirit. But I want you to catch this. I love the presence of God. But these three things that I'm going to show you that Jesus says are ways we abide in him do not require his presence. We can do these without the, or they do not require his felt or tangible presence. I'll say it that way. We can do these without the felt, tangible presence of God. And sometimes we fall for that trap. Now, I love the felt, tangible presence of God. We just experienced that, didn't we? And I want that every Sunday. And I want that during the week. And most days, at some point, I get that. But I, I, and I, if there's a way to do it, I'd like to figure out how. I'm still working on it. But I don't have the tangible presence of God 24-7. I know He's in me 24-7, but I don't, I don't always have the experience of it, right? So what I want you to see is we can abide in Him even without the experience of, oh, I feel Him, or He's tangibly here in the room, so much so that unbelievers walk in and go, whoa, something's here right? We can, uh, we can still abide in him without that, but we're going to get that as often as we can. Amen? Maybe we'll work up to 24-7. That'll be awesome. Yeah? I don't know what we'll get done, but uh, it'll be a lot of Jesus stuff. So these things work whether you're feeling God or not. They will cause you to abide in him. So let's read verses 7 through 10. He says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Sounds like fruit to me, right? By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just so I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So there's three things there, and I've put them in bold words all through your notes, so it would be really easy for you to figure out the three things that are important this morning. Right? The first one is His cleansing word in us. If you abide in me and my word abides in you. Amen? Because we just learned that He's pruning us, He's cleansing us with His word. Right? So we need to get it in us. Shouldn't, this should be obvious, but let's go through this. Uh, is it enough to have the Word of God dwelling richly on your coffee table? <laughs> or in your iPad? Oh, those are good things. Where does it need to be? In you. Is it enough that you have the capability of looking up something in the Bible when you need it? Sometimes, but most of the time, no. Because it's got to be in you. Guys, uh, remember Psalm 1 about how we're to meditate on His Word day and night. It needs to be ruminated upon for it to do its work, for it to prune us, for it to cleanse us. It needs to be meditated upon. It needs to be in us. you got to find a way to get the Word of God in you. All right? Constantly, that's what we're doing. We're just getting more Word. Uh, what we're doing this morning is a little piece of that. We're, we're, we're meditating on these things. We're going a little deeper in them. But you got to do that. you got to do that more than Sunday morning. If you want to be cleansed, pruned, fruitful, bear much fruit. So we abide in Him by getting His Word in us. Amen? 
Second one, verse 9. Uh, As the Father has loved me, I have loved you, abide my love. Now, first of all, if Jesus were like doing this, you know, whatever, if you're on the TV show and you have Jesus saying this, at this point, Jesus needs you to just go, uh, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you, drop the mic. And just think about that. Bam. You guys hear what he just said? How much does the Father love Jesus? I have no idea. I want to have an idea. But Jesus loves me like that. Do you get that? I don't get that like I need to get that. You know why? Because just reading it doesn't do it. This is a revelation. That's why I put a revelation of the love of God. You have to get this by revelation. You don't get this by just reading about it. You got to get in his presence. You got to do what we were doing this morning. That's why I loved where we ended up this morning. That that was going on was Jesus trying to give us a greater revelation of his love for us. Amen? And we need that again and again and again. I, Paul describes it in, in Ephesians 3 as knowing the love of God that passes knowledge, an endless revelation that we will never fully comprehend, but it just keeps getting bigger of God's love for us. And hinged on all of that is an understanding of how much the Father loves the Son. This needs to be something we seek. This needs to be a prayer. God, I want to abide in you. I need you to give me a revelation of how you feel about Jesus. Father, I need you to show me how you love Jesus. Because Jesus said that's how he loves me. And I can't understand that unless you show me how you love Jesus. I need a revelation of that, Father. And that's where we need to start. And that needs to be a prayer. And that needs to be something we go after in worship. Amen? A revelation of the love of God in us. And so what I do, I do what I call intentional awareness. I'll bet I do this at least several times a week. Um, Specifically, usually when I'm not feeling like God loves me. I will remind myself because of what I know. God loves me. I will shift my thinking to be intentionally aware of God's love for me so that I'm not dependent upon my feelings in the moment of whether or not God loves me based on how well I've done or how poorly I've done. When I've done poorly, that's when I need to be intentionally reminding myself that God loves me. We'll talk about how that works in a second. You understand? So, I'm intentional about this. I want to abide in Him. I need a revelation of His love for me. i got to remind myself all the time that He loves me. I'm serious. I, I think I do it several times a week. I'll just get in a place where I stop and go, God loves me. I know He loves me. That's a, you should do that. Just a thought. Okay, don't have to. That's just me. But you do need a revelation of His love. And then He goes on in verse 10, and He says... If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he's saying obedience is a way we abide in him. Keeping his commandments is a way we stay in his love. I'm intentional about staying in the place of the revelation that God loves me. And obedience also uh, 
keeps me in that place. And he reminds us that he did that. He said, um, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Remember, he ended chapter 14, verse 31, with that same example. Uh, be like me. I did what the Father said. You do what I say. And I abide in his love. Now, let me explain to you how this works. Um, because, uh, well, I'm just going to do it. So, we learned in John 14, verses 15 and 21 both, that love obeys. If you love me, keep my commandments. The one who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the guy that loves me. And we're going to manifest ourselves to him. So here's how that works. We get a revelation of God's love, and we go, oh, man, that's good. I think I'm going to do things his way. That's what Romans calls the goodness of God leading us to repentance. God loves me. I'm not going to do it because I'm afraid he's going to punish me. I, I want to please him. I want to respond to this love. And so love begins to bring obedience into our hearts, right? We get a revelation of God's love, and we begin to obey him. And then he says in this verse that obedience keeps us in his love. So it's just a cycle. I experience his love. I obey him. As I obey him, he expresses his love. And, and it keeps me in that cycle. And so it says if we have his commandments and keeps them, it will cause us to abide in his love. So this obedience thing is tied to love. We've got to get that because here's what happens. The moment we begin to compromise and we begin to go, well, did God really mean I need to obey that? I mean, no one really does that. And that thing, that might just be culture. That's just how they did it. No one does that anymore. And do I really need to? And the moment we begin to compromise our obedience in our heart, you know what happens? Our love begins to grow dull. And we start down that path. Who's experienced that? Yeah, I have. I begin to compromise, and my love starts to get dull. And the cycle goes the wrong way. And I have to, so you have to see that these things are linked together. So it's going, God, I see your commandments. I'm getting your word in me. I'm letting it work in me. And I'm wanting to do it. And if I, if I go, I don't want to do it, I step out of that place of abiding in his love. I'm not trusting him anymore. I'm, I'm into my own ideas now. It's not going to go well. Right? All right. So this stuff isn't hard to understand, just hard to do. So, love obeys. Let's jump on to verse 11. We've got a fair bit to finish here. Uh, and I want you to see this. It's real simple. Verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that my joy may be full. Why am I telling you this? So that you'll have joy. That's my motive. Bam. That's all he's saying. I'm not telling you this to make your life harder. I'm telling you this so you'll have joy. Who wants joy? This is the way. Not everyone believes this is the way. Some people think there's other ways to have joy that are better. It's not true. This is the way. Okay, verses 12 through 17. Let's read these real quick. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, we already got that in John 13. Jesus said the exact same thing, and he called it a new commandment. Why is it new? Because the old commandment was love others as you love yourself, which is still hard. 
He goes, I'm going to take it up a notch. Now I want you to love others how I've loved you. So I have to love you, not how Tony loves Tony. I have to love you how Jesus loves Tony. That's a lot harder. But that's where he took it. And so he's just repeating that command. But what I want you to see is we just have the one command, really. When he says, keep my commandments, he's pretty much narrowed it down to one. Love me and love people. Right? You guys know that. You know that verse. So, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Uh, Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all the things I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give. He may give. Uh, These things I command you, that you love one another. Now let's go through this real quick. In the same way, I'm trying to be intentional about God's love towards me, I'm trying to be intentional about his love towards others. So I go, basically, I got one command. God wants us to do one thing in this life. Learn to love people like Jesus loves. That's it. That's the command. Now, there are a lot of sub-commands that fit under that, but that's what he wants us to do. Learn to love people like Jesus loved us. So in the same way I'm intentional about reminding myself that God loves me, I'm intentional about reminding myself that I have to love people. So when I come upon someone, uh, sometimes it's someone annoying, and I will stop in my head and go, i got to love this person. That doesn't mean I have to give them what they want or do what they say. But my heart, I have to stop and pause and go, God, can you give me your heart for this person? I have to love this person. Now, I'm doing that more often than I'm reminding myself about God's love for me. I'm reminding myself I have to love this person. You know, pretty much every time you, you know, go out and deal with the public, you run into somebody and you go, I have to love this person, right? But we really do. It's a command, not a suggestion. And we really have to see that Jesus is saying, uh, I want, this is that whole bearing fruit thing. This is that whole being pruned. I'm trying to bring you to a place where you can love people like I love you. And I go, okay. So I'm going to be intentional about that. And by the way, in verse 13, just so we really get it, he, uh, he tells us, he really is referring to the example that he's getting ready to give to the disciples. He's going to die for all of us on the cross. And he says, uh, no greater love has one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So he's saying, by the way, my love is like super sacrificial. So if you're going to love people like I love you, uh, it's going to cause sacrifice in your life. It's just going to happen. Uh, you're going to have to, you know, do stuff, get up, leave the house, go do that thing you didn't feel like doing, right? Just out of love. It's okay if you just decide to do it. Got to work on our hearts. Amen? So we're seeing what's going on here. He's after love. And in fact, uh, this is obedience when we love people like he loves, because that's the one command, right? And so here's what I love. In verses 14 and 15, he goes, if you obey, that makes us friends 
I will no longer call you servant. I'll call you friends. Now, it's okay to be servant. Paul called himself a servant. We know about bond servants. But he's going, we can go higher. We can go friends. He says, you, you start obeying me. You start wanting to love people like I love you. You're my buddy. You're my friend. And did you catch what goes with being friends with God? Inside information. Here it is. No longer do I call you servant, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I've made known to you. You be my friend, you start wanting to love people like I love you. I'm going to start telling you stuff. Amen? Amen? I'm going to tell you everything the father's told me. You're going to get the inside information, the family scoop. And then... Simple statement, but mind-blowing. Verse 16, he says, You didn't choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. This might be something you want to remind yourself of occasionally. You were chosen to be a friend of God and appointed for eternal fruit, fruit that remains. You were chosen to be a friend of God, you guys, if you know Jesus, you were chosen by him to be his friend. And the purpose is so that you could bear fruit that is eternal. A hundred thousand years from now in heaven, you and I might be sitting down talking about the fruit that you're experiencing that you produced in this life. Amen. You got to think like that. Fruit that remains. Isn't that awesome? Just kind of fun to think about. In verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. He just wraps it up by saying, it's all about being motivated by love. It's all about being motivated by love. It's all about being motivated by love. All right? All right, let's see if we can get done. The last part should go pretty quickly. Verses 18 through 21. Now, let's remember, in context, we're talking about abiding in him and obedience and love and loving others and uh, all the word make, uh, purifying us so that we're more able to love others and bear fruit. And in the midst of that, he throws in verse 18 through 21. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you understand that? The world hates you, guys. The world hates you. Just saying. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they don't know him who sent me. Guys, the world hates you, and it will persecute you. Any questions? This is what Peter is talking about when he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. The next time someone hates you or persecutes you because you're a Christian, don't think it's strange. It's just the way it is. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. This is one of the ways you dwell in him. You partake of his sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, what I want you to see here is 
just two quick things. One, that we are appointed to love in an environment of hatred and persecution. That's the environment he's thrown us into. So we're called to love like Jesus loves. In this environment, we are not excused from loving people who are jerks or who hate us or persecute us. Guys, that's hard. That's supernatural love. You can't just work that up. You're going to have to get a revelation of God's love in you to do that kind of thing. That's wild. When we were on our uh, trip this last week, we were in Kansas City at a conference, and there was a story told about a woman in South Africa. Uh, apparently, when they, um, when they ended apartheid, uh, they uh, did this thing because there were a lot of crimes that had been committed, and they had this period of time where you could come and confess your crimes and not be uh, prosecuted for them uh, for this period of time because they were trying to move towards reconciliation. So there was a policeman that had killed, uh, gone to a farm and killed a man and then gone back to the farm later and killed his son because uh, the son was there the second time he went. And so he was in confessing his crime so that he could get off scot-free. And uh, the, the woman, the, the wife and mother was there. And so he did his confession thing. And uh, the judge turned to the woman whose husband and son had been killed and said, do you have anything to say? And she said, yes. She said, I no longer have a husband to show love to. I no longer have a son to show love to. Judge, I ask you, to require this man to come to my house at least once a month so that I will have someone to show love to. And he fainted dead away. Where do you get that? Where do you get that kind of love? There's only one place. Right? So we're called to love in an environment of hatred and persecution. In fact, I love in that verse in Peter where it says, not only don't think it's strange, but count it joy, rejoice, and uh, that you may be glad with exceeding joy. It gives us a whole different perspective on verse 11 when he says, I've written these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is like supernatural joy that we can only get in that dwelling place. This isn't just deciding to be happy. You understand? There's a supernatural joy in that dwelling place that can that can encompass us even in the midst of pain and suffering, of hatred and persecution. Amen? And so, verses 22 through 25, just going to finish up. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Because, remember, he said he came and spoke the father's words, not his own. And they didn't hear him. So they, he said they didn't hear the Father's words, so they hate him too. If I had not done among them the works, again, the works of the Father, which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have, uh, they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. This happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now, this is pretty simple. At the end of the day, sin... And the only sin that can send you to hell is rejecting the testimony of Jesus. 
That's what they did. The testimony of Jesus in the word and works of the Father. Jesus displayed the word and the works of the Father, and they rejected them. And he said, hey, they'd been okay if they were just ignorant. And so what I want us to see is that at the end of the day, it's about Jesus and the testimony of Jesus, and that everyone is responsible for what they do with the testimony of Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you will be held responsible for what you do with the testimony of Jesus. He is God. He is the king of all the earth. You have to deal with that. You will accept that or reject that and be held responsible. We each will be held responsible for what we do with the testimony of Jesus in big ways and in little ways. That's the obedience thing. We just have to know that. He's God. He didn't ask for a vote on it. He just is. And we're responsible for what we do with that. Amen? And so they are too. And here's the beautiful thing, verses 26 and 27, but when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, who he's been talking about, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. But when the Helper comes, who I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit, he's saying, I've been testifying. Whoever accepts my testimony has eternal life. Whoever rejects my testimony will die in their sins. And then he goes, you guys are also going to testify because you've been with me from the beginning when the Holy Spirit comes. But let's take that one step further because we also have received the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit in us, the testimony of Jesus continues. And so it's so important that we love and that we bear fruit and that the testimony of Jesus in us is an accurate testimony because people who see us and experience that testimony are going to be responsible for what they do with it, right? So we want it to be the best possible testimony it can be. That's why we're called to bear fruit, to let him uh, prune us and wash us with the word so that we're loving people like he loves us, that we're obeying him. Does all that make sense? Super simple to understand, really, really, really hard to do in the earth. But we're in this together, and we're encouraging each other. Amen? Amen. And uh, it'll be a lot easier if we can continue to get a revelation of Jesus and his love for us. So let's, let's have the band back up. Uh, just gonna, we've got about 10 minutes. Just want to close with a little worship. And I think I just want to pray for you guys. Rachel, you have anything you want to add? Just, yeah, use that mic. Never know. Sometimes Rachel's thought of things I haven't. Am I on? Yeah, I wrote about 12 things down, but you guys don't want another sermon. I, th- I think I just wanted to go back to Jesus is the Word made flesh. And if you want to know Him, you got to be in the Word. And, and be intentional about it. Be it, you know, you guys heard my clicker story. Memorize it and pray it. Write it down. So I, uh, earlier um, in the year, I was kind of like having a little, little bit of waves of what I went through last year. And I'm like, come on, God, let's get over this. And he said, Rachel, be in Psalm 139. Just, so I just read Psalm 139. 
I just read it and go, what do you want me to see? What do you want me to know? Because he's healing me and talking to me and helping me and changing my heart by his very word. His word, it works, you guys. I mean, we've all heard, well, what do you do in the word and the word when the word and prayer don't work? I'm like, we in deep doo-doo if those two things don't work, right? It works. And so Jesus is the word made flesh. Make just intent in your heart to be in the word, to sing it, write it, pray it, read it. Just that will make your heart come alive and stick with it. It's dull at first. And you're like, I don't understand this. God, I don't understand this. That's okay. He's okay. He can tell you. And you will see in a year's time, you'll be like, I've changed. I've changed. So be intentional about the word. Amen. So Stan, I just want to pray for you. For us. Father, it's my prayer for all of us here today, for all of us listening online. Lord, that you would give us a greater revelation of love. Lord, we ask for a revelation, Father, of how you love the Son that causes us to have a greater revelation of the heart of Jesus. Lord, we pray for that to awaken in us a greater desire to abide in you and have you abide in us. Lord, we welcome pruning. We welcome... We pray for a greater hunger for your cleansing word and to let it work in us, to make us like you. Lord, we want to be blown away by your ability to love other people through us. Lord, we want to be fruitful. We want to bear fruit that remains. Lord, we're in this to learn how to love people like you love. Help us. Help us. Lord, the only thing we know to do is a beginning place is to pursue you. To get your word in us and to pursue dwelling in you, worshiping you, praying to you, loving you, drawing near to you. Lord, today, just in this last few minutes, I just ask for greater encounter with the living God. 